Several folks have said to me, you know, there's such a dissonance in this book because it's like the community that almost kills you also almost saves you. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up, talk about what's going on in Washington, D.C. right now with some of the most important issues being debated on the Senate floor. And then Missy and I are contemplating becoming Swifties after this past weekend. And then later on the pod, we sat down with one of our very best friends, Amy Butler. Amy's got a brand new book out entitled Beautiful and Terrible Things. You're not going to miss this pod because it is outstanding. Stay tuned. Welcome back home, Missy. It's good to be home, right? It is good to be home. It it After a long um, little stint of traveling, we are back home. And um, funnily enough... <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I was thinking because this episode, we have our interview with our good friend of the pod, Amy Butler. So excited. We have been counting book. this down. And I've talked before about, um, you know, my notes app where I have my quotes and I do have an Amy file. But of course one, you do. one of my favorite quotes of hers, which is so random because it's not particularly profound or like Jesus-y, <laughs> but it's... <laughs> Jesus-y. <laughs> Yes, I'm a good T-shirt. That's right. Um, anyways, she said at a at a conference we were at last summer, she said, "You know, it's it's good to be home where the chaos is familiar." <laughs> and I've just been thinking about that this week as we're home, our hot water heater's gone out. You know, just things happen. But I'm like, it, I don't care. It's just I'm just happy to be home where the the chaos is familiar. You know, and it's not any more see through bathroom doors <laughs> that don't lock. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Indeed, it is good to be home. But hey, speaking of chaos, lots going on in the news this week. Uh, you know, if you look at the headlines. We're facing a possible government shutdown because of some radical right wing politicians controlling the House. Um, we also got to see the GOP primary debate, the second one this week, and that is what it was. <laughs> I don't. We didn't see it. We I didn't did, see I it. Did hear some, I did some read wrap about up it. And, and some clips, and right. wow, that sounded like I don't know an episode of The View or something. Exactly. You can't hear anybody? I know, Anyways. right? So that you know, all this chaos going on, but I'm so glad that our Senate is really tackling the most important issue facing Americans today. What's that? They passed a resolution, finally, Missy, finally passed a bipartisan, bipartisanship oh, is alive, Nice resolution that mixes casual clothing on the floor of the Senate. What? <laughs> For real? For reals. Wait. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is red and blue coming together in solidarity to stand against... Shorts and sweatshirts. 
Wow. Wow. That's, I'm so glad we got that, that taken care of. That's amazing. Well, John Fetterman, who is a newly elected senator out of Pennsylvania, his host stick was, he's, you know, a commoner, a common man. And so he wears sweatshirts and, and shorts and jeans. So just, you know, casual dresser. Well, he wanted to continue that shtick on the floor of the Senate. And lo and behold, his 49 colleagues didn't appreciate that. <laughs> wow. Well, you know what? See, I would be on board with this as long as there's like an addendum that says no white shoes after Labor Day or before Easter. That's right. Yeah. So, that's right. you know, then I'd be on board with the whole dress code yeah. thing. That's yeah. really my only you know, requirement and dress code. Exactly. But you know what? As big as that news was, okay, that's not the biggest it's not. news. Really. So we were kind of discussing what we were going to talk about in the opener, and we happened to be talking to our 22, almost 23-year-old son, and we're like, hey, what should we talk about? And he's like, what should you talk about? The internet broke this week. And we're like, what are you talking about? Believe it or not, it wasn't about sweatshirts and shorts on the Senate floor. Or, I don't know, the government shut down? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so but the internet did shut down. He's in the internet shutting down about Taylor Swift. I was like, what's going on? So I guess she's dating some boy, some some, some, fo- boy. some football player, I guess. Yes, Travis Kelsey. Trying to like help his image or something. I don't know. <laughs> Anywho. So she's, well, she's, she's got, yeah, I mean, she's got some new songs that need to be, you know, worked, she, workshopped. So exactly. this is kind of her stick. Exactly. So my theory is we are making note and, you know, I don't know. Talking about Taylor Swift's new relationship, which will very assuredly be over by the time this episode drops and the breakup song will be, you know, in process. In process. You know, it is absolutely crazy. I was looking at some numbers today on the news. Uh, Taylor Swift shows up at the Kansas City Chiefs game. I wonder this why last I kept Sunday. seeing like clips of that. Yeah, I mean, and just but now this is making more sense. Shut the whole, I mean, shut everything down. Thankfully, the Chiefs won. I mean, it was you know just kind of the storybook day for everybody. Uh, Kelsey makes you know catches a pass for a touchdown, and just the crowd is going crazy. But the Swifties out in the world are going crazy. Kelsey's jersey sales went up four hundred percent overnight. (laughs) <laughs> and there are more people who are tuning in to Chiefs football than there ever has before. It is absolutely bonkers. Also, I'm pretty sure we just spent five minutes talking about Taylor Swift. <laughs> we did, exactly. So, on this podcast about and, faith <laughs> and culture. And we've got, you know, we've got employees here at Good Faith Media who are big Swifty fans. and uh, They might be the ones who were posting stuff that I was like, why is Taylor Swift all over their story? Yeah, I don't know. But, I mean, we're, we're not kind of in the demographic of, of that fan base. We aren't. But, it, but in the, okay, so in the same vein of talking trying to figure out what to, to yeah. open with this week. I came across something else that I have to share with you. Okay. Do you know what other major event happened this week? Oh my gosh. Possible government shutdown, resolution, Taylor Swift. No. <laughs> um, Mitch, I'm disappointed in you. The major event that happened this week See you at the poll. Oh. This was see you at the poll week. Okay. Well, you know, <laughs> so, when I went out to our flag poll that morning, I did not see you there. So I, I forgot. No, it. no. <laughs> see, this is the thing. I'm a 
or was in my high school years, a super Christian until it came to getting up early in the morning. <laughs> then you're I out. I never made it. <laughs> That's when you began your liberal descent. That's right. That's right. It's all downhill from there. If they'd planned it for like nine o'clock at night, I'd, I'd have been there. Anyways, so, you know, in true fashion, I think, oh, this would make some sort of great quiz. Oh, right? crap. No, there's no quiz. <laughs> oh, good. No, there's no quiz. But this is really funny. So I went, of course, you know, my go-to is always to Google oh, sure. for all the accurate the information is. Turned 25 this year. Okay. So I, wow, that's a fun fact. <laughs> so I searched, uh, see you at the poll fun facts. You know, mm-hmm. that's always my start. Yeah. This is hysterical. So, you know, when you, you type in Google, like, you know, several words, you know how it will return. If it can't find, it'll return your search and say missing. Like they basically omitted words in order to give you a search thing. So I said, um, see at the poll fun facts and Google reports back (laughs) all these results, but it literally says missing fun. I about died. I mean, so I have a screenshot. Google of this, knows. Google knows. Google knows. It literally says missing, and the word "fun" is crossed out. <laughs> so that's all you need to know about C at the poll. That's it's, right. I mean, aside from the fact that it is super problematic for for many reasons. That's but. right. Well, Missy, we had our own Taylor Swift uh, in the studio this oh, week. Oh, that was a great tie-in. Oh my gosh. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I've been saving that one. Uh, I mean, Amy Butler stopped by the pod this week. Oh, she's just one of my favorites. You know that. Oh, I know. I mean, she's just, she's just remarkable. Amy and I go back a long ways, uh, pastoring in congregations and I just adore her. And she's got this new book out that is just brilliant just brilliant it is so good you guys just just go order pre-order it drops on tuesday so then you'll be able to get it and the audiobook will be available which i'm super excited about even though we did get an advanced copy (laughs) of the print version i will be downloading the audiobook on tuesday and listening to it in her words because i just i appreciate all that she had to say it's so um She's quotable. She's highlightable. I mean, but also it's just a story of human experience, just a very human experience. And I just, I, I love that anyways. And she does such a great job of um, looking back at things that have happened within her life and giving such poignant uh, points of wisdom that, that are universal. Absolutely. So we'll be right back with Reverend Amy Butler to talk about her new book, Beautiful and Terrible Things. You know, Missy, I really enjoy recording this podcast with you each and every week. Do you? Well, (laughs) uh, but this is not the only thing we do at Good Faith Media. It's not. We have so many offerings for you. We have a plethora of podcasts, videos, news and opinion articles, Bible studies, books, and much, much more. Find us at goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us. Pastor Amy Butler grew up in a conservative evangelical family in the diverse culture of the Hawaiian Islands. As she realized she was more inclined to be a pastor than to marry one, she began to un- the unlikely journey, breaking one stained glass ceiling after another, holding increasingly high-profile ministry positions in New Orleans, Washington, D.C., and New York City. Amy weathered rigidly unwelcoming congregations and enormous trials, ultimately 
ultimately learning that only radical love can, of community could generate healing. Her new book, Beautiful and Terrible Things, Faith, Doubt, and Discovering a Way Back to Each Other, shows her signature compassion, witty voice, offering a fresh, non-judgmental perspective of faith, which at its most beautiful expression allows for the possibility that there is more than one way to experience God. Amy, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Hi, Mitchell Rissy. It's so good to see you and to be talking to you. Amy, I'm going to open with a little quote from your book before I ask the first question. You say, when hearts have hardened and positions seem immovable, the only remedy is to hear someone else's story with an open heart and in turn to bravely share your own. So I want to say thank you for so bravely sharing your story. I loved every minute of it and wanted to start out by talking about just your transparency, your vulnerability in your writing and, and discuss how difficult it is, especially for the position of a pastor to show that vulnerability and talk about just just the very difficulty that, that someone in, in that position has in knowing when to share it, how to share it, and if to share it, and why those of us who sit back in the pews have such a difficult time allowing our ministers to have that space. Yeah, I think this goes to when, when we were trying to think about how to organize the book and how to link the essays to each other, the editor and I kept coming back to the idea that the only way to bridge differences between uh, people who have such vast different views of life is by telling our stories, like telling the truth about our stories. As you know from reading the book and reading the newspaper, my real life story is kind of hard to hide. And um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I decided. I don't know what you're talking about. Ministry. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> I decided early on in my ministry, it's just a lot easier to be the same person in the pulpit that I am outside the pulpit. And that's been dangerous for me. And we don't like to tell the truth about our lives because it's, it's dangerous. And church has, I think, in the past been a place where we've shown up all shiny and perfect. And that's just not the truth about what it means to be human. I was hoping in telling these stories that everybody already knows um, about me that other people would have the courage to tell their own truth. I hope so. I've, I think I told you after I got the book, which, by the way, I think this was my first official, um, I don't know, pre-release copy of a book ever. So I hold <laughs> And it, it, it is well-read. <laughs> it, it is well-read and well-worn. Um, but I just found that even though our paths are so much different, there's so much truth in this book mm -hmm. for me. And I feel like for anybody who grew up in a similar circumstances in evangelical or in, in church work and had anything to do, it's just, there's so much truth in here for life and faith um, for, for really everyone. I thoroughly enjoyed it and felt so seen and heard in so many, so many parts. So thank you. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. One of my biggest fears about the book is that people will be like, oh, this is a book about a pastor in a church. And I don't have, I don't like the church. I don't have anything to do with the church. Understandable. Um, but I, I was hoping that in telling my stories of what it means to be human through whatever perspective I'm holding, that other people would find some similarity and support. 
And I think that is what is so beautiful and inspirational about your story and your willingness to share it, Amy. I mean, you and I go way back and you and I share a profession. Uh, Both of us are pastors, we're ministering in local congregations over a period of time. And you know how that is. You know, we, we are human beings. We recognize that we're human beings and we go through, you know, as personal uh, we have personal problems just like everybody else. But a lot of times those conversations and those struggles happen behind the stained glass in our own personal ecosystems. And we may talk about them professionally, even though, you know, traditionally we haven't been that good at talking about that, uh, those vulnerabilities uh, within our profession just because we're always trying to put up this facade. But one of the things I really appreciated about the story is your story. Yes, it happens in the context of congregational ministry, but it is a story that happens within community. And so somebody picks up this book, they could be struggling through the same thing in their job or, you know, in their social community, wherever their neighborhood, their family. I mean, these issues are real and relatable to anybody who is a human being. And that's the beauty of your story. And I think the magic of your ministry. I feel like, you know, that's the title of the book, beautiful and terrible things. And um, those of us who lead congregations are at the forefront of, um, you know, organizing human community in in one expression, but everybody has it, mm-hmm. you know, like at your job or where you volunteer or whatever. And there's a lot of beautiful and a lot of terrible. Um, several folks have said to me, you know, there's such a dissonance in this book because it's like the community that almost kills you also almost saves you. Yeah. And um, that happens to me over and over again. And, you know, Mitch, as a pastor, we usually enter this work because we're looking for community that heals us. Mm-hmm. And very often it ends up sinking us. And yeah, so you'll see that over and over again in the book. Lots of stories. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Amy, I want to talk about your indigenous heritage. You grew up in a diverse culture on the Hawaiian Islands, but you also grew up in the evangelical church. In the book, you write this. We can't live in ways that hurt or exclude our neighbors because we know at the core of who we are that when you live on an island, you have to take care of one another or you die. Did you ever feel those two cultures, your indigenous culture and the evangelical church that you grew up in, did you ever find those at odds with one another? Um, you know, and how did that tension play as a part of your life in ministry? Oh, that's such a good question. I live with that tension every day, but I will often joke and say that I think being Hawaiian saved me from evangelicalism mm-hmm. because like I say in the book, when you live on an island, you have to make room for everybody. There's always an extra space at the table. Everybody's welcome, even if you're a little strange. Um, we adapt so that everybody has what they need. And the rules go out the window when it comes down to matters of life and death. And um, ironically, as you say, I grew up with th- this structure of, of black and white rules and um, evangelicalism that so many of us grew up in. 
And it just didn't seem right to me. And you'll notice in every story I tell in the book, it's like chipping away at, you know, this, um, this like predetermined, this is right and this is wrong. Even though I am somebody who likes lists and I am very type A and I would prefer to have a book of rules, I find that life is just messy and the rules don't, don't serve us in the end. Yeah. You know, one thing, you know, that I appreciate about our conversations and reading your story and you've, I, you and I have had outside conversations about our indigenous heritage and how we share you, uh, your heritage coming from the Hawaiian Islands, mine, Muskogee Creek, and about that tension that exists within our theological formation. And I know we've talked about the process of decolonizing our faith and trying to be, you know, hold on to these elements of our faith that we cherish and that we love and the beauty of you know, the Christian faith at its core, especially being a follower of Jesus. But at the same time, it seems as though a lot of the tenets that we have been practicing or advocating for through our careers are more about propagating a Western culture than it is the faith of Jesus. And I feel that tension. I know you do yeah. as well. Western culture and the preservation of an institution. Mm-hmm. And um, if we think about what Jesus did, he came, I mean, how much, how much time did Jesus spend in committee meetings? None. <laughs> so, like, I don't know. I have the minutes. Let me look. <laughs> <laughs> I think the minutes are called so, the gospels. But oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the closer you look at the witness of Jesus, the more you you start questioning, you know, yeah. uh, American nationalism and um, even the institution of the church. And 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 again, it's this dissonance that we we live with. But that doesn't keep us from having true relationship with each other and true faith if that's what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's what I found out this. So far, I mean, I'm 53. I might change my mind in a few years. I don't know. So you also, in one chapter, you tell the story about a man named Howard oh, in Howard. Washington, D.C., and he called you the New Orleans Flash. Now, what? now I had to, I stopped there for a second before I kept reading. I thought, oh, where's this going, Amy? <laughs> same. I, I've met Amy, and my, I thought the same thing. <laughs> But anyways, exactly. After after he passed, you reflected on uh, your relationship and you said, we are constantly formed by the beautiful and terrible experiences of human relationships. Howard and I may have failed to understand each other. Sometimes that's just the truth, but I couldn't deny that knowing and loving him had changed me. So let's talk about that sentiment. And you, I feel like that sentiment comes is recurring throughout your stories about your shared relationships within the churches that you ministered to. So why is it important, you feel, for people of faith to acknowledge what we've been talking about, the beautiful and the terrible things? You know, Mitzi, I'm a person who experiences God in relationship with other people. And... Um, that can be so beautiful as it was with Howard. You know, he was an 86 year old man who had been a member of the church for 55 years and he was the chair of deacons when I came to be his pastor. I was 32 years old. It was my first senior pastorate. 
And he called me the New Orleans Flash because I was I came from New Orleans and I was always I was trying to change things. I hit the <laughs> ground running, like new website, you know, new accounting system. New website, how dare and- you? <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 Wait, man, I, I took our ad out of the Washington Post, our printed ad out of the Washington Post, and that was one of my first scandals. Um, <laughs> Little did we know. <laughs> But Howard was so sweet to me. And I think every pastor needs a Howard, like somebody who comes alongside them and is like, slow your roll for just a minute. Um, You know, um, take a deep breath. You're not the only one here. And he just really was my friend. And um, we disagreed a lot over the years that we were in community together. But he is somebody who profoundly impacted my life. And taught me that I can love people that I disagree with. Mm-hmm. I guess I need to find my Howard. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I mean, oh, I, he was such a love. I wish he was still alive. He would just get such a kick out of this book. He, he really would. No, I know. And I know in our churches that we've been in, like you can name each oh, 100%. that we've, that you've encountered. In, in but I think, history. I mean, that is such an important truth that comes out of the book. And, and of course we're talking about Howard in this instant, but there are other stories that you tell in the book about the importance of uh, finding humanity in each other, as well as community, even in the midst of disagreement or different vantage points. In a world now that is so polarized and so divided, this is central to your ministry and to your life. How important is it now that we learn that principle and practice it? Well, Mitch, it's so interesting that this book sort of evolved. It took six years to write this book. I mean, a lot was going on in my life and in the country and the world. And um, where we've landed is this place where families have a really hard time having Thanksgiving dinner together because we just can't find a way back to each other. And I tell some stories in the book that are, are, are very hard and hard to read and have been hard to live and are going to challenge the more progressive audience that reads this book. And one of them is about my friend Todd Underwood, who is the owner of United Gun Group. It's an online gun trading platform and sales platform that sold George Zimmerman's, the gun that George Zimmerman used to kill Trayvon Martin. And uh, Todd is a, a ardent gun activist and he's a, a very uh, right-wing Republican and conservative evangelical Christian. He lives in Kansas City. And I read an article about him, used him as an illustration in a sermon. He had a, like a Google alert on. <laughs> and so he reached out to me on Twitter and wanted to have a talk. And that was really hard for me because I just don't agree with him about anything. Sure. And um, we started that call. Well, first of all, you'll laugh at this. I mean, he wanted to talk to me that day. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, no, no. I'm too <laughs> important for that. So I had my secretary call him. I'll have my people so call your people. Call, <laughs> I'll have my people, my, my person. And, um, and when we started our call, I could hear his children in the background. Wow. And um, we started a friendship that was in, I think, uh, 2016. Mm-hmm that has continued to this day. And I went actually and and visited his family last year and met his wife, took me to the shooting range. And um, 
you know, a lot of people feel very, very angry about that story and about my relationship with him. But I can tell you that when he puts something on Twitter that I find really, really hurtful and offensive, I can call him and ask him to take it down. And we have that kind of dialogue that exists because relationship is there. Yeah. I really appreciated that you included the story of your relationship with him. And I'll admit, like it was, you know, my shoulders tensed reading it and thinking about it and wondering how I felt about it. But I feel like you did such a great job of honestly conveying your feelings, your conflicting feelings, but then also just a real human experience Mm -hmm. of how you came to the table with this person. And like you said, now you have a relationship and you can call him and go, you know what, that that was you know, I, I don't agree with that. I think you should take it down and, or whatever. But I, I just I really appreciate that it was included. I think it does challenge all of us, especially those of us who have a really difficult time coming to the table with with people that we just very ardently disagree with. Yeah, Amy's a better Christian I just, than I Missy, I, can't, I just can't think of another way forward. Yeah. Right. You know, like me sitting here saying I'm right and you're wrong is not going to get us anywhere. Right. No, you're hundred percent right? right. It's, it's relationship and it's the, it's the messiness of, you know, being That's, human together. All right, so, pastor, I confess <laughs> right. I, I seek repentance. I'll try to do better. Thanks. <laughs> so in, in addition to stories like your friendship with Todd, you write about some of the most private moments of your life. You talk about losing a child. You talk about going through a divorce. You talk about church conflict and being, you know, released from your duties, so to speak. What do you hope that these challenging stories provide to readers? What do you want us to glean from that? You know, Missy, the funny thing is uh, several people who have read pre-copies of the book have, have come to me and said, like, oh my gosh, your life has been so hard. I cannot believe all the pain that that you have lived through. And I'll say like, um, your son was addicted to drugs for six years. Like like everybody has their pain. Everybody has their pain. So I just don't want to allow anybody to read this book and be like, oh, well, she's different than me because she's had so much pain in her life. No, we all have the pain. We all have the pain. And um, I, I write about some of these things because the truth of being human is that sometimes relationships do not heal us. And sometimes they can almost break us mm. or do break us. And I have had in my life, as you have had, and every person who's going to read this book, times when relationships have really failed and have, um, have left me questioning the goodness of God. and and very often the existence of God. I, I told someone, like, this book is like the story of me believing in God, then not believing in God, then believing in God again, <laughs> then not believing in God. And then, like, back and forth. So the chapters need to be re- renamed, believe, <laughs> not, yeah. believe, believe, not. <laughs> yeah. That's just life, yeah. though. And like yeah. you said, it's, if everyone, you know, at some point in your life were forced to write your story in 200 words, like you said, it may look like that. But those are the moments, you know, you're reflecting back on these things that were integral parts and and scenes from your life that have helped shape who you are. And that's why I said at the beginning, this book is just so very relatable. It's just a human experience. As we've all experienced so many of the things that have happened in your life, you just happen to have gone, walked through this path 
as someone who had a pulpit, literally, <laughs> and, and a microphone. So, but I, I think that I think that the story that's this is why it's important because I'm going to embarrass you for a second, Amy. I mean, you are an American prophet. When you when you speak or when you write, you are doing it with authority, and you are doing it in a way that is unique within the public square. And so, I can remember following your career because you know you and I are you know same age and you know kind of came up uh, in this Baptist ecosystem together. And I can remember watching you before we got to know one another. Uh, you know, just really admiring you, uh, being inspired by you, and at the same time, a little envious of you. you I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mind saying that I had pulpit envy. <laughs> you had pulpit envy. I had envy. pulpit envy. Oh, my gosh. We just, we, we just introduced the next recurring theme. Right. Who do you have pulpit envy of? But uh, I, say that because, I say that to get to this point. We live in a culture now that is dominated by social media, and we all recognize that social media is this incredible facade. And it, we try, you know, even we talk about the arguments and the divisiveness on social media, but also just the blatant attempt to put up the very best of ourselves. And I, as a pastor, I can remember young families coming up to me talking about, I just don't feel like I live up to so-and-so, or I'm not as good parent as so-and-so, or my career's not taking off as, as somebody that I watch on social media. And what you've done with this story is to peel that away and to show the reality of your personal and professional life in a way that is incredibly powerful and cr- incredibly relatable to everybody who picks up this book. So I commend you. This is something that I just really not only appreciate about the book, but just about you as an individual, as a pastor, and as a friend. Thanks, Mitch. I, I mentioned to someone the other day that it does, as, as the book launch is imminent, I do feel like I'm walking around without getting on because I don't see how you can tell your story and not hope for someone to receive it with grace. And I, I know that for whatever reason, there will be many people that find my story difficult to read or offensive. And, um, Maybe they'll so like the Todd I'm chapter. I'm that vulnerability right now. But the reality <laughs> is they may, their, their, their visceral reaction may be one of, um, dislike or anger or holy righteousness, or, but the reality is that's the people who actually need to read the story, and they may read it have this, well, this reaction. As you they, know, Mitch, <laughs> I've had people mad at me before, so I'm just trying <laughs> to get ready for the next yeah, wave. Yeah. Um, but we got your back. I think you know. Tell thank you. Telling the truth about your life is yeah. is a scary prospect, and that's why so many of us takes so much time and effort and energy and pain to cover it up. Yeah. Well, I want to finish the formal part of this by just simply reading a statement that you made in one of the last times you were behind the pulpit at Riverside Church in New York City. You said to the congregation, sometimes the church breaks your hearts far more 
than it does the gospel work of healing us. But we must remember that the church is not God, and that love always wins in the end. Amy, for those of us who are trying to hold on to a relationship with the institutional church, what hope can you give us to stay? That's a hard one, Mitch, because as you know, so many of us have been hurt by the institution. Um, and particularly now as the institution is in decline, mm-hmm. it lashes out at its leaders and those of us who are trying to make change. And um, I think one thing that I found helpful and have found helpful in in the writing and putting together this book is the times that the institution has showed up as its best, you know? I, I tell in the book the story of my divorce, and um, that was one moment when the church had destroyed my belief in God. We had been through all kinds of conflict and change and, you know, got the new website and all that. <laughs> and um, I was feeling pretty negative about anything related to church. And when I found out I was going to become divorced and I, what I didn't expect it, you know, my church community stepped up and loved me and my kids back to life in tangible ways and in intangible ways. And I tell the story in the book about, you know, telling the kids that, that we were going to get divorced and Hayden's first question to me was, are you going to get fired? Mm-hmm. Which is so telling about, about how our institution yeah. shows up in moments like these. A 14-year-old's first question is, are you going to get fired? Right. And against all odds, the church showed up and loved us back to life. And and I just I just hold out this like hope for human community because it's it's the only way I know to find my way back to people I've lost, to relationships that have broken. And um, so don't give up. If the institution lets you down, go out and find another way to Uh, build a bridge to somebody who's different because God is there too. Love that. Love that. Well, Amy, you're still at work and finding incredible innovative ways to be the church and to transform local communities. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. You know, everyone always asks me, like, what is the church dying? Is the church dying? Is the church dying? Yes, the, the church as we know it is dying, but uh, communities of grace and redemption are not dying. They're popping up all over the place. So as our traditional institutions decline, um, I was trying to think of ways that we could move some of our resources from these big church buildings into the work of people on on the corners in our neighborhoods who are doing the work of redemptive community. So that's how Invested Faith was founded. Invested Faith is a fund for churches that are at the end of their institutional lives. And we give um, small unrestricted unrestricted grants to faith-rooted social entrepreneurs who are building businesses that are changing systems. So as we live through this time of change, uh, this is a bridge a bridge between (laughs) who we were as an institution and then who we're becoming as the bakeries employing new Americans or, um, 
you know, all of these little businesses and communities that are transforming our neighborhoods. And so that's been a real place of joy and light for me. I've gotten to meet so many um, future faith leaders who, you know, if the institution is not going to make room for them, they're going to go and find a way to be light and life in the world. And uh, I, I just want to show up there with them and I get to do that with Invested Faith. And I, I feel so grateful. And our listeners can find out more about Invested Faith at investedfaith.org. It is an incredible ministry. Good Faith Media is a proud partner with Invested Faith to tell these stories about the fellows who are just absolutely remarkable. I just can't say that enough. Uh, so please check them out at investedfaith.org. You know, Mitch, you asked me about my Hawaiian identity yeah. and and how that sort of plays into my story. And I wanted to tell you guys about the cover of the book because it means yeah. so much to me. So pretty. When um, when Random House and I were discussing the cover of the book, they said things like, you know, well, this is going to be for middle-aged women who are unhappy with their lives. Wow. The target audience wait, standing right before you. You waited until after I gushed about how much I related to this story before you were like, this is for middle-aged unhappy women. Oh, I'm going to stay on this conversation. Go ahead. Oh my God. So sorry. No, I don't agree with that. I think it's for everybody, but they said, you know, like, People like us, Missy, like botanicals on the front cover of books. <laughs> and I said, Also well, on our shirts and me, vests. <laughs> yes. Also, let me explain to you that I'm from Hawaii, which is a, an island and a tropical paradise. So I'm not going to be putting a carnation on the front of the book. I need a Hawaiian flower. And so their artists sent me like pictures of hibiscuses and stuff like that. And I finally said, you know, I really want an ohia lehua on, on the front cover because this plant is the first plant that blooms after the devastation of a lava flow. So when the hot molten rock covers a piece of land, it kills all the vegetation. And then, as we know in Hawaii, because we have active volcanoes, the very first plants that come up are these really gnarly ugly little shrubs that have these incredibly bright, beautiful blooms. Um, and and this is what the Ohiolehua plant is. And to me, it decorates the lava flow with so many like pockets of brilliant beauty. And to me, this is what my experience of being human is. Mm. It's like devastation and then beauty in like the most unlikely places. And so I really wanted to tell you about the cover because that's, um, that's something that means a lot to me. It is a beautiful book. cover. I'm so glad you remembered yeah. to, to tell us about that because I know we've talked about it before and it's so meaningful. So thank you for adding that. Mm -hmm. Amy, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today about the new book, Beautiful and Terrible Things, which comes out next week, Tuesday, I believe. Drops right? next Tuesday. Tuesday, October 3rd. But you can pre-order it now. Pre you guys, pre-order, pre-order, And pre -order. not only does the printed version come out 
the audio version comes out. I'm, I'm most excited about that. <laughs> Having read the print, I'm ready for the audio. So like I said, I posted on. You, you can hear me preaching at you. Yes, that, that would be so Hey, I, I can. I have an Amy files in my phone <laughs> with all your quotes. So, <laughs> but yes, I'm very excited for that um, and excited to be invited to whoever's book club is going to read this book first. So hit me up. But anyways, so Amy, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So so in light of our conversation today and the work that you do, what is your more to tell? Missy, that's such a loaded question, <laughs> yep. um, especially because I think a, a lot of people think that that this book is a tell-all, and it, it actually is not. If I had to say what more I want to tell is whatever your story is, whatever relationship in your life is broken and unnavigable, could you please just just try one more time. That's my more to tell. Please keep trying. Love it. And, and my very, very last question, when's book two? <laughs> wow. Oh my God. <laughs> Beautiful. This, I, would, I, would, I would have multiple babies with no <laughs> before writing another book. So terrible and worse things. Yeah. <laughs> June of next year. Oh <laughs> Got <goodness>. it. <laughs> Well, Amy Butler, thank you so much for joining us this week. The book is Beautiful and Terrible Things, Faith, Doubt, and Discovering a Way Back to Each Other. Friend, it's always a joy. Great to see you. I love you guys. Thank you so much for this conversation. Well, Missy, I don't know about you, but... When I talk to Amy Butler, it is always a delight. She is just a rock star. She really is. She never disappoints. And she's so much fun and just so wise. And I'm so thankful that she has written her story for all of us uh, to read and to glean from. The book is just brilliant. I mean, it just really is. It really is. And so I wanted to take a moment because we didn't specifically ask this in the interview, but to read something that she wrote about her reason for writing the book in the first place as Mm she, you know, had expressed a little bit during the interview, but to us, you know, offline was, you know, this is terrifying Right. as somebody who is, you know, kind of burying your soul and about to release this to the world. Um, you know, she's nervous and and scared and all the things. And I, I really, you can relate to that. I relate to that a little (laughs) bit in the sense of, yeah, every week when we record, then I fret and I worry and I stress about what I've said. Did I say something wrong? Who's going to record this and play it back in 20 years? And it's not going to, yeah, folks, you have no idea. I mean, say a prayer for me because this is weekly. It's pretty bad, but I'm not even bearing my soul in the same (laughs) way that she does. Whole different level. Definitely does. So I want to read her statement. She says, beautiful and terrible things began as an attempt to observe my own life. I remember leaving certain situations or engaging in particular conversations or having experiences that kind of got under my skin. I knew I was supposed to be learning something, but I didn't always know what. So I would sit down and try to write down the things that were on my mind and in my heart. What they all meant, I don't think I always knew. It was the process of stitching the book together that began to teach me what it was I needed to learn all along. That being human is full of the most heartbreaking situations, along with so many breathtakingly beautiful ones, that even in the pain and brokenness and disconnection, it's worth it to try to reach across a divide, and that I experience God most profoundly when we humans finally discover a way back to each other. Beautiful. I thought that was so beautifully said and really layered in well with the the theme of the book and, you know, her, something that she's 
She says, I'm a person who experiences God in relationship with other people. And that's right. something I've really enjoyed learning from her along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was thinking about what, what to talk about or how to kind of capture um, our listeners in, in our kind of out, outro segment here. And I thought we could sit here and say, you know what, this, go buy this book. It, can, it contains prostitution. It contains oh my gosh, I mean, the headlines and miscarriage yeah, yeah. and divorce and scandal and, you know, firing and all of the, the drama um, you would want. In something that grips you. And it's all it, in the book. It's all in it's the book. It's all in the book. And then I realized, you know what? That's also all the stuff that's in the Bible. Hey, now. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so I thought about that. And I thought, you know, that's, it's, it's fun to, you know, think about the salacious or to, to want to get yeah. your hands on the details. I'm right there for it as well. Yeah. But I just started thinking about Amy and her statement and, as, as you're writing these things, or even as authors of the Bible or, or any great work, or looking back, you're retrospectively looking back, you're writing, like she says, I'm trying to make sense sure. of what's happened in my life. What truths can I glean and how can I learn and move forward? Mm-hmm. And so... Anyway, so there's my plug is basically relating Amy's <laughs> to the Bible. Bible. That's probably it's super a, sacrilege. A, a, a beautiful and terrible things right by Holy Scripture, and you're going to be well, just fine. I, I know. So this is one of those things I will go to bed fretting about. I shouldn't have said that. But it really no. is true for our personal yep. narrative. We're just trying to make sense of what's going on in our lives and why we have pain and suffering. Yeah, I think you're 100% right, because if you read the Bible in its entirety, and understand its true intention. It is theological reflection of what has transpired in individuals' lives and in countries' lives. Uh, it just, it just, it is what it is. It's, it's trying to come to some kind of understanding of the experiences of individuals and community. And so, their story is very much like our story. And this is one of the things I do think the connections with Amy's book very well uh, beside scripture because it is a human story and is a human story. And as you indicated in that uh, final statement that you quoted from her, it is a relationship of human beings, but in that human relationship between individuals within community, we find the divine. We really do. I wanted to read one other thing I just stumbled across from the book. Um, she says, but I want to leave space for what you imagine God to be too, if the divine is reality in your life at all. Whatever God is for you, I hope that looks like lavish and unrestricted love. And I think that's kind of the point of the book that she makes is wherever you find that community, however you find that, it needs to look like unrestricted love through our relationships, through our relationship to God, our relationship to a, a divine, if we, if we have one is to be full and to be surrounded by unrestricted love, unrestricted love, which I think also is kind of the theme of the Bible. <laughs> like you were saying earlier, you know, people writing reflectively, it doesn't mean that you can't, you know, wear hats on Sunday or whatever it says in Leviticus. <laughs> it's, we're writing reflectively to try to find ultimate truth. And right. that should be always unrestricted love. Yeah. And in these communities, we find both rejection and acceptance. And that is kind of the totality of life. And it's, it's a struggle. It's a, it's, a, it's a tension that always persists in these relationships. And so, you know, in her honesty and authenticity and genuineness in telling her story in this book, 
I think a lot of our listeners will relate to that story. Maybe that doesn't happen within the church, or maybe it happens within a different type of community. But in this life that we're living, it's filled with beautiful and terrible things. And it's easy to get discouraged today. And I certainly understand that. But then you listen to people like Amy who have been through the ringer at times, and they still are able to find these glimmers of hope and these experiences of love. And it's just a beautiful thing. So she has inspired me. You know, another moment in our conversation with Amy that just reminded me about the importance of Christian theology. And she and I have talked about this numerous times. And she talks about her new ministry with Invested Faith. Mm-hmm. And that in a lot of ways, and this is not new news for you know people who listen to this pod, but the institutional church is struggling. Mm-hmm. There are some congregations out there that are thriving, doing some wonderful things, and we celebrate that and, and just love to hear those stories and to tell those stories. But as a whole, we are seeing the institutional church in decline. We're seeing certain congregations having to make some very difficult decisions. But what Amy consistently does is to teach, advocate, and live out a theology of resurrection. Right. That may be one of her greatest contributions, both from the pulpit, in writing, teaching, and life examples that I've ever seen. That she refuses to give up, even when things are dark, even when it does seem as though death is present. She believes in resurrection. She really does. It's so funny that you bring that up because I was just thinking, even if it's a website, she's going <laughs> to kill that old one, but resurrect a new and beautiful that's right. one. That's, <laughs> and, but that's really how she sees the world. And when she does talk about invested faith, I know Good Faith Media helped produce a video for her mm-hmm. and when, when, as we were filming, listening to her talk mm-hmm. about the organization and how she views it and how she was able to so beautifully express This, you know, as some of the physical buildings, you know, as the institution that we see it as, maybe dying, that there is a resurrection, that we are people of the resurrection, that, you know, with every, every, you know, caterpillar in a cocoon is going to die and resurrect beautifully. And I... I just love that imagery and I love thinking about life that way and that we do mourn the things that pass. We do mourn the things that are no longer with us, but also we can have joy and reinvent and reimagine what it looks like going forward. And I do think that in many ways, the church, the institution of the quote unquote good old days, whenever those were, I mean, in many ways does need to die. And I don't mean that means all the churches need to close their doors, but I do think we need to reimagine and re-envision the church, how we behave, what our purpose is, how we're interacting with the world and society at large. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, there has been hurt and trauma, you know, associated with that institution, but there's, like she said, there's also been so much beauty and joy and support through that institution. So let's, let's think about how can we put to death the things that are harmful mm-hmm. and no longer relevant or no longer useful. Keep those things that we cherish. Keep those things that are wonderful and loving and build on that. Yeah. Continue to move forward. Continue to expand. Continue to have, add seats to the table, as she mentioned. Mm-hmm. You know, and I love 
what she said in the interview and what she's told us in the past expressed about living on an island in Hawaii, how that the people there truly understand that my success is yours, your failure is mine. It's a very, you know, small ecosystem. And I think we just lose such sight of that. That, yeah. that it really is communal, that we really do have to make room at the table for everyone. We really do have to keep being innovative. We have to keep yeah. imagining the world as a more loving, more accepting, and more productive place. And how can we as the church also do that? Right. You know, I, I just, and I loved her the description that she gave regarding the cover of the book. It's just, it's almost like God is teaching us all we need to know. <laughs> it's just right there in nature. <laughs> if we just open our eyes and look at it. Exactly. If we look for it. I remember the interview we had several months ago with, um, about Parliament of the World Religions with, um, oh, I can't remember her name. Uh-huh. Uh, the the Wiccan priestess. The, yeah, the, w- the Wiccan priestess. Yeah. And she was, I asked her, because, you know, I'm just Curious. ignorant. Yeah. I was like, do you have a sacred text? And she tells this beautiful story about the, the text being lost to, mm-hmm. to rain and fire and wind and all these things. She's like, we have the world. We have God's creation. We have, you know, and yeah. you're like, oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she said it much more eloquently than I did. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's just, yes, Amy's story about the book cover and about the, the lava and about killing everything around it. But out from out of that mm-hmm. is just born something beautiful in the end. Yeah. And so how can we take that as a lesson, as a life truth, and make sure that, you know, the what we're producing in the world yeah. out of something terrible, out of death, is something beautiful. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the final word is that no matter what we're going through right now, no matter how difficult and dark these days seem to be, that keep battling, keep fighting because there's always that potential for beauty to rise up through the ashes. And that is something that Amy has taught us, uh, not only in this book, but uh, in our friendship with her. Absolutely. Do you want me to leave us with one last quote Please from do. the book? I mean, there's about 47 bookmarked here. I could have picked any one of them, but I'll you know, go ahead and go with this one. She says, if there's any future for human community in any form, it will be born in the painful mess of tenacious love and committed relationship. This broken world needs communities willing to do the hard work of that kind of relationship, places where we can remember that reconciliation is the foundation of our life together, as painful as the process can be. Because when we make it to the other side of the mess and pain, we can't help but be transformed by the grace of it all. Beautiful. And that is the perfect way to end. Absolutely. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org. Thank you.